1: Welcome back to Believe in Softball. That's B-L-E-A-V. I'm your host, Jenna Becerra, and let's walk through the order today. So first, I'm going to cover all our bases, chat about some news in the softball world. Then we'll head into my interview with today's guest. It's Dana Sorensen. She's a sports performance guru, and she was an All-American pitcher at Stanford, too. So it's always fun to talk to another alum. And then we'll be continuing on with the new segment, Double Play Tip of the Week, the two-sided tip to help us get better. So let's get to it. In covering all our bases, I've obviously focused a lot on college and spring softball because that's what we're in right now. The transfer portal is increasingly active, of course, after all the recent news that we've talked about. But one fun thing, too, is that Maya Brady from UCLA, she was actually named Freshman Player of the Year by Softball America. She's also Tom Brady's niece, and he shared it on his Instagram story. And you love to see family. You like to see athletes supporting athletes. And the crossover and support for our sport is awesome. So that was a nice bright light this week coming from the softball world. But I also want to look ahead because we can't forget about summer softball too. Beyond just the postponed Olympics, especially considering the prep and the training time that's really necessary to be ready to compete. And it is already mid-April. So first, thinking about the high school-aged players playing travel ball. They really have no idea what the future holds them right now timing wise for their games they're used to playing 11 months out of the year big showcases and national championship tournaments are in the summer so without that sense of timeline training is particularly tough to get right you know which we'll get into with dana today actually as well now on the professional side of things canadian wild of the npf they have now actually officially joined the aussie peppers in bowing out of npf competition this summer due to travel restrictions related to the pandemic. This isn't a surprise, given that there is a global pandemic and a lot of uncontrollables, unfortunate. On the other hand, the Scrapyard Dogs and the U.S.A. Pride, so these are both NPF teams formerly that have since broken off independently. They announced that they'll be joining forces for their 2020 summer tour starting on June 4th. That's the schedule right now. And to start, I really love to see the collaboration. You know, I think what's tough at times with following pro softball is that there's constant change and even some separation with teams coming and going. So to have organizations work together is definitely a good thing. And Kelly Cretchman, you know, she's one of the goats of softball altogether, really USA, Alabama, NPF, you name it, called it, quote, the start of everyone working together. And I think that's, that's telling and important. And I think I also love the concept of showcasing these teams competing at youth tournaments around the country. The exposure's great in that sense. And especially with young players being able to see professional softball, you know, that helps the game grow. I really like the spirit of it. There's still, of course, though, we can't ignore a lot of unknown with COVID-19 and summer sports in general, whether we'll be able to play or if we do, if there will even be fans present It's still really a wait-and-see game, and I think it's safe to say at least that things are changing on a daily basis, so let's try to do what we need to do right now to beat this thing. And kind of along those lines, USA Softball launched a hashtag Play It Safe at Home initiative. It's pretty cool, actually. They're going to have instructional videos and tips from the current athletes and more resources, and the idea is for us to unite at home with these resources so we can go out and play later. I think this is a good way to bring our community together during this time. It is interesting because there are different messages sort of that we're seeing between different softball organizations right now and a little bit of a roller coaster on whether or not we'll get to see games. But honestly, I think that reflects the roller coaster we're feeling across the board right now. So we'll see. We just have to hope for the best. So for now, let's go straight into today's interview. She is a Stanford University Hall of Fame pitcher three-time All-American, four-time All-Pac-10, elite coach and instructor, and sports performance specialist, Dana Sorensen. Thanks for dialing in, Dana. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, I always love chatting with Stanford alums too, and I know we haven't officially met before actually, so what a cool kind of forum for us to get to know each other.
2: (laughs) Yeah, technology bringing uh, different generations of players together is pretty
1: awesome. I know, I love it, I love it. And I know that you finished college in 2004, so I was 2012, for both of us, a lot has changed for Stanford softball since our time. I mean, now we just, I look at the field, it's renovated, the batting cages are new, there's a sweet locker room. So my first question for you is, when you see Stanford softball today, what are you most jealous of that you wish you had? Ooh, that's a really good question. Uh, I was up there uh, last spring
2: to see a game, and I do have to say that the locker room being right there, like within a walking distance, um, ours was, you know, when we first started, it was in the depths of Ariaga, um, yeah. which is, I mean, it's a good quarter of a mile away, like on your bike. And it was a little tiny room smashed inside of the general, like, you know, gym locker room, you know, with the whole like open shower thing. So I was definitely right. jealous of, of that for sure. Um, I mean, now the batting cages are pretty awesome as a pitcher. I think I would have loved to have, you know, a covered bullpen you know, growing no matter what. But um, I think more than anything, it's just the amount of information they have access to now. I mean, the technology that they can use and implement in their, in their practices and their games and stuff, you know, from scouting reports all the way through, um, you know, coaching technique apps and and video slow-mo and then everything that on the sports performance side, you know, which I work in daily, gosh, man, it's just like huge, huge changes and difference and i think to myself man if i had some of those opportunities or those resources wow what could i have done or what could any of us have done you know like yeah like, you gave mendoza some of those opportunities Woo! <laughs> i don't know every record might be broken across the country
1: right seriously that's really true especially with the the training aspect of it which we'll get into more as well and and i know you mentioned the locker room my freshman year i remember we shared a locker room so it's different than when you guys had but we shared it with, I think, the club rugby team or one of the yeah. club teams at Stanford.
2: Yeah, my last fifth year, yeah. That's okay. Really yes.
1: Yeah, and and it was you know okay, but there was always kind of a questionable smell in there. You know, it was a little little sketchy at times but then I have to say we did get a pretty sweet locker room it wasn't as close or as done up as locker room they have now but you know we did have like a couch in there so I can't really complain about that but I definitely was extra grateful from freshman year to later in my career because of that
2: (laughs) I mean we thought the rugby locker room was like living the high life yeah We had, it was just us and the rugby team. I remember thinking like, wow, this is amazing. And now I go in theirs and I'm like, oh my gosh, we have names on lockers and you have a couch, you have a kitchen area. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable.
1: It is. And see, this is why you have to talk to alums too, to appreciate (laughs) what came before you.
2: We played when there was no stadium. So when they were building um, that, that stadium, uh, Jill and Boyd Smith Stadium, we played a whole season with Dirt Hill behind home plate. Wow. No fans could sit behind home. All of our parents had to park it out in the outfield because they were excavating the pool and bringing the dirt over to build the stadium behind us. So we had to schlep every uh, net and screen and, you know, nowadays bow nets are easy, but back then it was, you know, the steel frame ones and you had to take it over to the field hockey turf, put it over the fence, put it on the turf to hit and do that every day for a whole year. Um, wow. That was, that was probably the most frustrating. I mean, it's really weird when you play a game and you see a big dirt hill behind home plate. Yeah. No fans.
1: That's crazy. That is crazy. Wow. And yeah, the batting cages that they have now covered and everything with lights, a bathroom in there. That was a oh huge gosh, thing a too. Oh my gosh. Don't even get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, and you actually played with Jessica Alistair, right? The current head coach at Stanford. Do you have any stories? I know you went to two wow. women's college world series together, right? Yeah, I have a lot of stories about
2: Jess, but she probably doesn't want me to share a lot of them <laughs> uh, yeah, we went together for what ended up being um, a full four years. So I'm a year ahead of her. And then uh, we, I redshirted, So we ended up being seniors together. Um, and we were, so two of us, three of us, uh, too I think because Michelle redshirted but yeah we were the only two seniors in our in our senior class so in that that last World Series trip we took but the best story I'll say about Jess and and not a lot of people know this to this day but I so I was the person that tore my ACL on a skateboard um, very famous for that within the softball community and certainly within the Pac-12 conference Um, we were it was after our first weekend of games it was during Super Bowl and this was following 9-11 year, so everything was a week delayed so we had already played a game and we were all hanging out watching the Super Bowl. And Jess and I decided to get on our longboards at halftime and cruise around campus. And I had a little mishap, mishap and I kind of exited my skateboard improperly and ended up tearing my ACL, um, to which I had to the entire season. And, and you know, we were, we were ranked pretty high. We were coming off our World Series uh, first trip the year before. But not a lot of people know that Jess was with me. Uh, somehow that never got out to like the broader community and that's kind of stayed a, a hidden little gem, but it was her and I together on, on, cause a lot of people say like, what the hell are you doing on a longboard? Like, yeah, that's not very smart. You're a pitcher. It's in your season. And I, and I never really said that Jess was with me like, who let you do that? <laughs> okay, so. You're
1: like my catcher. It's a battery. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> yeah.
2: And I remember when it happened, I, you know, I was like, oh Jess, I don't, something happened. I don't, I don't feel right. Like my knee doesn't feel right. So you're fine you know and we're it does the-
1: sound like her response you're fine
2: <laughs> why are you worried about this and uh, it's really funny so now looking back it's hilarious because I got an extra year with her um, and we got to go to the world series um, and then following that actually she got a job coaching at Georgia when I was getting my master's degree at UNC so we were within six hours of each other so we met up frequently and then when she got the Stanford job as an assistant I got the UC Davis assistant job. So we were within two hours of each other and we would meet up frequently. And then here's the crazy thing. She literally got the Oregon assistant job the day before I got the Oregon state assistant job. Oh my gosh. So then we spent a whole year, like 45 minutes apart from each other coaching (laughs) every off weekend I had, I was in Eugene hanging out with her. Um, Corvallis is not the most exciting town. Um, But yeah, so for, for a good, uh, what four or five years there, we were following each other around the country. Um and we had even played on the and in the pro league together. We played on uh, a Massachusetts team. So Jess and I have been it's been hard to separate our paths in life. (laughs) Funny enough. Yeah,
1: you can't escape your catcher. That's just how it works. Yeah,
2: yeah. (laughs) Stayed close with her, which is which is awesome.
1: That is really cool. And that means you were, uh and that's right now that I'm thinking about it, you were the assistant at Oregon State when I was playing at Stanford because I remember Coach Alistair was my assistant coach at Stanford, my freshman year, so she has plenty of stories on me too. She recruited me, so she'll—I'm sure she'll get me back at some point. But um, and then I remember her going to Oregon, we played against her and stuff. So that was all at the same time. and Now it's all yeah. coming together.
2: Yeah, absolutely. She, yeah, we were we were all circling paths. Yeah, I was at Oregon State for two years, um, and definitely when Brandon was there. So yeah, like definitely when you were we're, were in that. I, I kind of block out a lot of the Oregon State time just because I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> I'll get into it later, I'm sure.
1: Well, yeah, we will. We'll get into it. But, you know, I don't know if any of us know what we're doing. And I feel like during quarantine, that's only become that much more evident that we all are just trying to, you know, just trying to make it from one day to the next. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Well, another story that's awesome, too, that I have to ask you about is your induction into the Stanford Athletics Hall of Fame. Can you walk me through that experience from when you found out it was happening to the actual induction?
2: yeah it was uh i did not expect i it was never on my radar i had no like you know wasn't thinking that that was a possibility i didn't even know the rules and how many years out or anything but i got a call from um, an administrator It was like a springtime like around this time of year um in 2014 it would have been um and let me know i was chosen i was just absolutely floored i mean at this point it's just mendoza in for us on the softball side um so i mean it really really took me by surprise and then. You know, it was also a little bit bittersweet because I knew um, I was not going to be able to share that moment with the coaches that had recruited me um, and mm-hmm. I had played for. So this was maybe two years into um, Rachel Hanson's time coaching, and great person, you know, awesome. She treated me fantastic, but it was a little bittersweet because I didn't have John Rittman to to be there. Um, and I played for Lonnie Almeida, who's now the head coach at Florida State, and knew obviously that you know her career had moved on and she wouldn't be, but. I think when you think about those moments as a player, if you think, oh, this could happen, you always imagine that the person that brought you to this university and gave you the opportunity and kept giving you the ball and and all the support in the world would be there. And so for me, that was, I was super excited, but also really bummed that um, I wasn't going to be able to share that moment. And just with kind of how things went down, you know, I knew that there was just no way that he could be a part of it, um, you know, and I called him and talked to him and, you know, we had a good conversation, but that was, that was a really like kind of bittersweet moment. But so I then uh, turned around and, and called up my good friend, Tori Nyberg, who pitched with me at Stanford, yeah. to introduce me um, and share a few stories. So um, that was really neat getting to like reconnect with Tori and then I had several uh, teammates come out, especially ones in the Bay Area, come out for it and, and, and be there in the audience and, and sit. But here's the funniest thing about this is, I did not know I had to give a speech. So I just thought it was, you're accepting your hall of fame. I don't, I don't, I really wasn't processing a whole lot. And we sit down in the theater and nobody in my family really knew how many people were going to be involved in this. I mean, none of us had gone to a hall of fame induction. And as we get in and we see like several hundred people, it's just filling up the auditorium. I'm like, wow, that's impressive. And then the first person gets up and I forget who it was. I can't remember. I'll have to look that up. But anyway, they start talking. I'm like, oh, I was a wrestler. It was Matt Gentry. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to speak. You know, I looked at my uh, wife now, my fiance then, but I was like, uh, I don't, I don't have anything prepared. I didn't know I had to give a speech. So luckily, by alphabet, I was one of the last ones to go. Perfect. I had the next 45 minutes an hour or hour, whatever, to try to collect my thoughts, and and I had to follow a gun and amani, a Stanford volleyball player. She is hilarious. <laughs> like, she's just one of the funniest. And I, I was in school with her. And actually, uh, several of the inductees that year I had gone to school with, so that was pretty cool. Nice. Uh, she just like brought the house down with this funny speech and just had people like in stitches laughing. I thought, like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what I'm gonna say. And I'm gonna follow this. Like, this is gonna be a disaster. But <laughs> I, somehow I pulled it together and, and got what I needed to say. But it was just a really wild experience going um, in all different directions <laughs> emotionally.
1: How do they not tell you that you have to give a
2: speech for something yeah. like that? <laughs> Me missing reading an email or something, uh, who knows? Yeah, or I think I had somebody who maybe not done the coordination before. It was their first time, and they had so many. I mean, we have eight people, so either my fault or whatever. But yeah, probably better that I didn't have it prepared because it was more genuine from the heart.
1: Yeah, actually, sometimes it's better. Sometimes you might prepare something and then you don't even use it anyway. You know, you just go right. for it. <laughs> yeah,
2: and I was the last one, so I tried to make it short and sweet. Get everybody on to having a glass of champagne.
1: Yeah. See, that's that's the crowd pleaser right there. (laughs) I think actually I was supposed to have met you then because I actually came late to the Celebration Barbecue that Coach Rachel Hansen, as you mentioned, kind of had for you, the softball program through for you. And I actually didn't get to get there in time, but I came later. So that's actually when I saw the new locker room for the first time and everything. So now you know where the first question came from. I was triggered, but... (laughs) But then I, I, I missed getting to meet you then, but I guess, you know, good thing we get to chat now.
2: Yeah, just like paths crossing just momentarily. Yeah, I have to say Rachel Hansen was a great, she was great. She was a wonderful host and, and very welcoming and very appreciative. So um, that was well-received on our end, just to have a coach who I didn't know, I didn't play for, really like bring me in with open arms.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you got to have the conversation at least too with Coach Rittman because, like you said, it was obviously a huge part of your career. And not only that, but the Stanford program up to that point was all Coach Rittman, you know. Right. So I'm glad that you at least got to have that moment in some way, shape, or form.
2: Really cool uh, way for he and I to kind of reconnect and lives are crazy and busy and going every way and, and to be able to have that moment on the phone and just appreciate him, you know, I think it was really cool.
1: Yeah, that's great. And I do have to let the listeners know why you were a Hall of Famer, meaning I have to brag on your stats a little bit. So just give me, give me a minute to okay. do this. <laughs> so you actually hold the career record for ERA, 1.05, and that's in almost 1,000 innings pitched. And I also saw while looking this up that you were not only number one slot, but the number two and number three slot for single season ERA. And your best was 0.64 in 2001 which is unbelievable over 1100 strikeouts in your career over a hundred wins like th- this just keeps going on and on and on and I do have a bone to pick with Stanford because these stats were harder to find than they should have been but I managed <laughs> <Good> there <job.
2: laughs>
1: there are few who can accomplish numbers like that right but each person has their own style so how would you describe your pitching style?
2: Um, I think uh, if you ask some of the people that had the, the most influence on me, I, they'd probably say like a bull in a china shop. <laughs> I, I, a power pitcher, love strikeouts, love throwing the ball by people. You know, I, I joke with the kids that I work with now and I say, you know, you don't have to have a changeup. You just can throw hard and harder. Um, <laughs> so I was, I was just very like, I remember once I got to Stanford, I, I felt very comfortable in who I was as a pitcher. And, and I think the greatest thing about, in general, in the program, especially that I played for, was um, the unbelievable support, like the unwavering support. It didn't matter the failure in a game or a batter or, you know, whatever, or even tearing my ACL for goodness sake. Um, You know, Coach Ripman and and, uh, Coach O or Lonnie Alameda at the time and Sarah Pickering, they were just like never lost their faith in what they thought I could do or accomplish or what I was capable of. So I remember getting to like a very calm feeling um, on the mound, even as a, as a freshman. And so that really, allowed me to kind of develop my own sort of uh, like I say a bull in a china shop if you ask a lot of I think you talked to a lot of Pac-12 opponents they'll tell you I was pretty bitchy on the mound and <laughs> a, bit a, a bit of a hothead and a little bit of a fire streak but I think that that really worked well for me that was my persona and that was really supported by the staff that I could be who I wanted on the mound and 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 not lose that that uniqueness to me so like I think I mean, hard and harder. I'll throw the ball in on you, you know, if I, if I think I have to or if I think that <laughs> you deserve a ball hard and in. Um, very different personality on the field than I am in regular life, which was w- really fun for me um, during college, was to be a completely different personality in, in my competitiveness um, than off the field. Um, but, yeah, definitely, I think, bowl in a china shop, throw the ball, chuck it as hard as you can, try to knock Alistair on her butt if I can. <laughs> Never did, but I tried. <laughs>
1: See, I love that though, because I do think to a certain degree, and like you said, it's best to be able to switch that on the field and then off when you're off the field, but to have like a little bit of some sort of mean streak almost, or like a little bit of edge to you, I think is important. You know, during my time, we went to two super regionals and we were one out away both times from going to the world series and it didn't happen. And sometimes I think that if we would have had a little more of that mean streak overall, that maybe we could have got there the way that you did twice. Right. Yeah.
2: I love it. Your your team up. Right. Like, I mean, I went a little bit too far in, in, in some situations um, maybe Uh, (laughs) 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 a little too much or slammed my glove in the dugout a little bit too hard or took a loss a little bit too long to bounce back from. But um, I did notice that that fiery presence in that, that like everything was personally offensive to me. Like if a hitter thought they could get a hit, that was offended. Um, and I carried that with me. Like it really kind of brought our infield together, especially I mean, their outfields a little bit further away, but you know, I could, I could feel that energy kind of give to them a little bit and they're fired yeah, yeah. up because the challenge with softball is it can be a slow sport at times, you know? And the challenge with a strikeout pitcher is your defense is sometimes like a little bit more on their heels because you're throwing a lot of pitches. Yep you know, most strikeout pitchers aren't going out in three pitches or four pitches in that bat. You're looking at six, seven. And if you're a hard throwing rise ball pitcher, you're looking at a lot of foul tips, you know, before you finally can can get that last swing and miss. So I think you have to have a little bit of some connection with your infield so that they're ready when the ball does get in play and they're anticipating it and they're excited. And and I do see a lot of young pitchers now who kind of struggle with understanding that it's a, it's a slow game at times. Um, and it can get lulled into ways like go through the motions a little bit. So I think sometimes that, that fireiness also leads to, I think I like, I absolutely refuse to lose. Like I hate losing. So we're not going to lose.
1: <laughs> well, I think, you know, now it's, it's more and more clear to me how you and Alistair operated together because I know she just cannot lose <laughs> either. So yeah, like neither one of, we lost a game.
2: Don't talk to either one of us for like three days.
1: Yep. That's exactly what she said. Cause I had her on the show the third episode this season and she literally said pretty much almost verbatim what you just said
2: <laughs> yeah I don't I mean we lost a world uh regional series I think me they're my freshman or sophomore year and I don't think I spoke to anybody for two weeks <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we really I mean we, we understood each other that way um you know she didn't need to make it rosy and I didn't need to make it rosy for her like we're here to win and if we don't win we're gonna be pretty pissed for a long time
1: yeah eh, makes sense and you like you said you work with a lot of players now I know one in particular for example is Delaney Gorley the national champion at Florida, spent some time with Team USA as well, and, and others, like Lonnie Alameda, you said, was your coach who obviously has won a World Series at Florida State since. How do you feel like pitching has evolved since you were in the circle?
2: Well, that's a really, that's a really interesting question because evolved is, sometimes I wonder if it has evolved. Mm. Um, you know, and, and Lonnie and I do debate this a little bit, I think, back and forth. Uh, we have more kids playing now than probably ever before um yeah. softball has its biggest exposure on ESPN and and everything that comes with that um so we have a lot more kids playing we have a lot more tournaments we have a lot of more everything lesson instructors everything across the board and you know I look back to when we played in the Pac-12 and in, in the early 2000s and every team which was a Pac-10 obviously then but eight teams in the in the conference every one of those eight teams had a 68 to a 70 mile an hour thrower
1: yeah like
2: we had hard throwing Uh, really really good talented pitchers up and down our conference and not that the 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 conference is not good but I look up and down the Pac-12 conference and and I see some some pitchers and I'm I scratch my head sometimes I'm like I don't I don't know that you would made a roster you know in the early 2000s you know when you played, I don't I don't know so I don't know if it's just more more kids are involved and more more games less less practices less real competition more showcases but um I think on some level we haven't evolved as much as we probably should have, and then on other levels I think we've evolved in a different way where we have a lot more pitchers that are hitting, playing other positions, multiple things, which is pretty awesome. Um, You certainly have some pitchers that have a very unique skill set; they do one or two things really well, um, and they maybe factor into a staff a little bit better. Kids come in for two, three innings versus seven innings, which in itself is is a different mindset that you have to learn how to adapt to. Um, But yeah, I kind of wish we had more. More hard-throwing, you know, uh, competitive, fiery pitchers. But I, I think the system, the travel ball system, the way it is now, makes it hard to develop that. You know, it's not nearly as cutthroat um, as it as it once was. I don't know. Did you play in the new PGF era?
1: No, pre-PGF.
2: Did you, you play ASA? Yes. Joshua, Oklahoma yeah. City. Yeah. Yeah, when there was the one tournament.
1: Right. right. like right, <laughs> The one right, place right. to go. Yeah, there
2: was, I mean, there's a one PGF, but you have PGF and triple crown and you triple saying have all of these, you know, governing bodies putting in their championships, but we grew up playing with one, you know, and it right. was about winning ASA nationals and, and a little less about recruiting because it was less exposure and people had less awareness of the number of scholarships and, and the programs that had scholarships because it wasn't on TV nearly as much. So I think that competitiveness kind of fosters itself more naturally at, a, at our, our era of playing, just cause that was, that was the only reason to play was to win ASA nationals. Now I think the reason to play is, is to play and to win. And then also to try to get that scholarship or make it to that college. So it just kind of, it kind of changes, I think the mentality of pitchers. Um,
1: that is so winning. interesting. The idea of the showcase versus the real competition. I hadn't, thought of it explicitly like that and i think that's a really good point and part of it is also like should college coaches be recruiting more of based off of the real competition versus showcases anyway because that's what you're going to do in college like now you're you're kind of making my wheels turn
2: yeah i mean having done the recruiting for a few years uh, at davis and oregon state and then you know working closely with my kids that are going through the re- recruiting process or you know talking about them and and coaches and stuff i know there's a genuine frustration even from the player's side like I think they want to compete more. They want to play in games that matter more, you know, wins and losses and not drop dead time and four inning games. And and the coaches want to as well. And I think it's harder for them to figure out, okay, I got a talented kid over here, right? But now I got to get a competitive kid over here who refuses, no matter what you have, whatever your skill set is, how are you going to help me win? How's the team going to win the game? Because that's what matters. And unfortunately the system creates the showcase, which says, does anybody know what the score is? (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) right. Showcase isn't about competing. It's about showcasing your skills, kind of like a combine. Kind of taking the combine in football and blended it with a tournament, quote unquote, game setting. And that's, I think is very confusing for kids um, as they go through the process. And it does, I think, make a hard hard transition to college to you got to compete now and you got to win games. And more so now than ever, because, you have a lot more people coaching and you have a lot more people interested in coaching than ever before. Um, So you have a lot more administrations that are willing to make a coaching change. If the wins aren't producing, you know, 20 years ago, I don't know that we had that much pressure on coaches to win. Yeah. Didn't have as many people interested or as much like national exposure, media exposure, you know, everything. So kids don't get that chance to figure out how to compete better. And then coaches need them to compete more. Yeah, you know, at a much higher level.
1: Now that softball actually is starting to become a revenue generating sport, that's like additional pressure on the coaches too. That's really interesting. To your point too, with all the, the knowledge that we have now that we didn't necessarily have before, like you'd think maybe we would have evolved more, at least uh, in terms of in the circle in the softball world. But you have a unique perspective because you, you understand the mindset, the fundamentals and the mechanics, of course, but also... You have knowledge of the body in terms of training and sports performance, sort of the science behind it. Can you elaborate on your background there?
2: Yeah. So I, when I graduated, I went to get my master's degree because I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. (laughs) Um, And uh, I went and got like a sports admin, uh, actually sports science master's degree. And then from there got into the college coaching because again, it was an easy, I wouldn't say easy, not easy to do, but like my background kind of like slid me into that to that world. And I did the coaching on the college level for a while, but I always like, I loved, I always loved training and I always loved working out and in my injury history in college, I could fill a whole page with the amount of MRIs and uh, CT scans and things like that. I had, you know, not just from an ACL, a back injury, you know, multiple times and several things. So I always used to ask myself, like, did I have to be this hurt? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, when my back injury presented post ACL, were those things connected? And, you know, like why, like why, you know, did I have to be managed so much on innings later in my career for health? And so that always was in the back of my mind. And then I went into coaching college and picking the brains of strength coaches that I worked with, you know, in the university setting and then seeing the mechanics of my kids and then seeing like, can I change that? Is that in our wheelhouse? And, um, so then when I transitioned out of college coaching, cause it just wasn't the right setting for me. And I got into the private sector and started doing kind of the pitching lesson format thing. And I, you know, I jokingly tell people now, I'm like, I thought I could change everybody. I was like, oh, well, you just don't know. Let me just like enlighten you and you will be a better pitcher. And through that like five, six year process, I realized that these kids understood what I was asking. They just physically couldn't do it. Mm. You know, their bodies were not physically able uh, to get into the position I needed them to get into to execute a pitch better in terms of speed, velocity, uh, spin, all that good stuff or or just efficiency and, and safety. Um, but they were trying their hardest. So as a coach, you scratch your head and think, okay, what am I missing? You know, And that's when I started picking the brain of, of Brandon Marcello and and reaching out to some people and thinking, okay, I know I've been in this box. I've been in this softball box for my whole like adult life. I know that, but what am I missing? So then I started going into the training world and getting certifications and started with some kettlebell stuff, got into FMS stuff, got into now I'm into like more, uh, we do some functional range conditioning and some breathing PRI and some other stuff that you would never think in a million years would tie to pitching. But as you're exposing yourself to this whole other world of, of movement specialists, you start connecting dots and be like, huh. Okay. So my kid, maybe I should look at her ankle dorsiflexion and how much mobility she has. Cause that might be influencing why she drags the whole side of her foot and why she can't drive off the rubber in the way that I'm talking about, or maybe mm-hmm. Get our hip hinging pattern I keep talking about loading in the beginning of the motion but I don't even know if you can do a hip hinge you know and what's your hip mobility to be able to access that movement pattern so um then I started to really like have some aha moments and think wow we're really chasing this from the wrong direction um and got with a training company and worked with them for a year and then my business partner now John O'Green and I uh branched off and started our own performance training company where we specialize mainly in, in softball and baseball but you know, when you look at rotational sports, it's just an interesting sequence we have to master. And there's so many movements at play and so many things that you could look at that might disrupt that sequence. Um, and you might have a little less efficiency or, or even like if you're talking about hitting a ball exit speed, you know, we think of of training in terms of the traditional, like I go in the weight room and I throw a bunch of weight round and I do my back squats and I, and I kill it and I do my power cleans and that's going to make me a better softball player. And you go out there, and you don't hit the ball any further. You don't have better ball exit velocity. And now we can measure those things pretty easily, you know, or you go on the pitching you know, rubber and I haven't increased velocity at all, or my RPMs haven't changed. And so what have I been chasing in the weight room for the last year? And you start talking to college coaches and you say, okay, so you started your training in September, it's June, give me the progression of your pitchers. Mm. Have they gotten better? Have they gotten better in the in the ways that you want them to? Did they produce more velocity? Did they like was longevity there? Could they go more innings now? Are they healthier? And a lot of times we're hearing no, <laughs> they're not, as a softball player, um, and that's what we start looking at. So uh, I, I end up having a lot more questions than answers, but um, <laughs> the answers I get are, are are pretty fascinating.
1: It is fascinating. And actually you mentioned Dr. Brandon Marcello. He hates when we call him doctor, but I will anyway, but a lot of this aligns with what he would tell us because I was lucky enough to have him as the director of sports performance for all four years at Stanford. And so he talked a lot about this approach that you're talking about in terms of looking at movement and also his programs, like you were saying, you could do all, all these different things to get quote unquote stronger, or faster but like does it translate to softball his programs were focused on not only being sports specific but even at times position specific
2: 100 percent. well you look at positions right like what a
1: shortstop because you played shortstop correct uh i did growing up because who didn't if you played in the infield in college but third base
2: so like what you have to do as a third baseman or a shortstop is very different than what the catcher has to do all game right and, and what the pitcher has to do all game and honestly, very different than your center fielder. I mean, you're going to throw a ball to first probably more often than your center fielder is going to throw a ball to home in an average game. So we all play the same sport, but it's very different in terms of demands. Just like football, right? Like, the quarterback is a very different position than the running back versus the wide receiver versus the D-back. And their training programs, I think, I think do reflect that. Um, and we're just now starting to look at softball. Like, Brandon's one of the, the pioneers of that. Like, you know, my catcher needs to have a little bit more hit mobility than my third baseman. Priority for her, um, given the squat. He's right. definitely who inspired me to get on this path for sure.
1: Yeah, I love that. And another thing he talks about too is recovery, which I think factors into all of it. But how do you kind of, as you're working with the kids now, I'm sure there's sort of that preventative mindset, right? Where you do certain aspects of training to avoid the injuries. Like you're saying, if you were able to, like what would you have been able to do? But then also, it's also battling the injuries once they happen so how do you kind of put those two together in your approach so the
2: first thing that we do um every athlete that comes in our facility whether they want to do pitching with me you know they're trying to get a better rise ball or they want to get stronger or faster they go through a full assessment protocol and we do that jointly with a physical therapist and then and then ourselves so our physical therapist puts them through through a uh version of called selective functional movement assessment so they might come in and say yeah i have this nagging you know on and off shoulder issue and our pt is going to look at everything from the top of their head all the way down to the bottom of their feet and see if we can find a connection to why something else might be the reason why that shoulder is is bugging you Um, but we put every one of them through that and that's our 10 year olds all the way through our professional mlb guys and from there we get we get a picture right we get this this, big, this picture of where we need to go and where we're started, and, and what's our biggest priority. So, we try to identify the, the yellow flags, right? Or if somebody comes in with a red flag, we already know they have an injury. That's going to mold our training approach right from the get go. But if we see a yellow flag, you know, if, if we see a thrower of any kind, overhand or underhand, come in, they don't have adequate shoulder flexion, meaning they can't get their arm overhead in a proper range of motion. That is hundred percent our number one thing we're going to address so i don't care how much you can squat right now i care that you can get your arm overhead in a safe way so for us we can kind of get ahead of some injuries um and then when injuries do pop up because they do you know they get you can't avoid them uh, we have that initial assessment to look back to to see maybe if any yellow flags or, or pre-yellow flags we missed um and then we also have the the skill setter of, of our PTs and we funnel them right through there um, and we as trainers ourselves, we don't ever try to take care of the injury um, we know our skill set in our lane and, and and I got this from Brandon actually like stay in your lane you know my lane is sports is performance my lane is not um, injury management so we have in-house PTs and so we immediately shuffle them over there they give us their feedback okay they should be on the table or you know they need some hands-on treatment or no it's manageable but you got to do this this and this so um, we try to get into that 360 degree approach where I'm the skill coach and I do the, the sports performance training, but then we have the the medical side of it in house. And, and honestly, in today's generation of athletes, this is really important because as you said, recovery, they don't ever get recovery. They're playing 11 months out of, well, not right now, but <laughs> <laughs> well, so I always talk to my kids, like you start in the fall, like you start your fall, uh, you know, uh, recruiting season, September, and you go September, October, November. December rolls around and you're in and you're in recruiting camps. You're going to colleges and doing all the college camps. January hits, you're back into tournaments. February, if you're a high school athlete, you're in high school season all the way through June. And then your June, you're back into travel ball. Like so they're playing eleven to twelve months out of the year. So in our training program, we don't have the time off for them to throw. And they're always playing games. In the college setting, you're not playing in the fall, you're playing eight total games, right? And those are hopefully spread out and they're scrimmage type situations sometimes, but you have a good, usually four or five weeks where no games are happening and you guys are working on skill development Um, and you don't have the high leverage innings on your arms where these kids, they never have that, that four week, five week block of just developing skills. So our program has to reflect recovery kind of within it. So we need to make sure that we're not taking our high school athletes and pushing them, pushing them, pushing them, they don't get enough sleep. They don't eat properly because they're teenagers, right? And, and college students, you can lump into that too. So we can't take them into a training session and say, I'm going to push you, push you. You're going to, I'm going to make you mentally tougher. And I'm going to like, you're going to be working and sweating and you're going to be on the floor gasping for air at the end of it. Like that's not valuable for us. We have to look at movement patterns and low dose intensities. And, and we want our athletes to walk out of their training session feeling better than when they walked in. And not feeling any side effects of it as they go into the practice that afternoon or the next day or a game. So we're very careful in our implementation of our programming that we're not giving them too much at once, you know, and it does tend to be more on the movement pattern side than their overloading strength side. And, and we would love to have those six weeks of like, hey, let's crank it out strength wise. But this climate doesn't allow it, uh, right now. And and actually right now would be great if we could do that, but we can't get into our gyms.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So that's actually, that's what I wanted to ask you about too. Obviously right now it's a crazy time with COVID-19 making it really hard for athletes to train facilities are shut down. They're not around teammates or other people. There are less resources, et cetera. So with that being said, in your view, how can pitchers and players really to be productive with their training during this time
2: so i've had several conversations with with coaching friends of mine about what do you do you know this is for the college system this is april you guys should be playing you should be playing probably in the pac-12 series right now an sec series or an acc whatever conference you're in which means three games over the course of friday saturday sunday and maybe a doubleheader on on tuesday so Um, Ideally for the college kids, you stay on that throwing schedule. So you do the best you can if you have the resources available, like you have a space in your backyard to throw or a park that isn't closed near you. And you're still getting in that throwing because we want to match the calendar year as best we can for those college kids. So they would pitch through now until like maybe the first week of June and then they would begin their, their break time and their arm resting so they can build it back up for the fall you know, not ideal scenario is they don't throw now for April, May. Maybe they get access to throwing again in June and now we're going June, July. And do we really want to take off? We don't have time to take off again to get built back up again for fall. So now we're, we're back into maybe a full summer of throwing before a full fall of throwing. So if they can figure it out through a bonnet, through, uh, like a dad catching to keep the schedule of their throwing right now and match it to what they would be doing in their season. So, You know, like coaching friends and I, we've talked about like some days need to be game days and they need to be the pace of a game, not go in a bullpen for 30 minutes and go throw 75 pitches, but set it up in like 10 minute intervals, like innings. And within those 10 minute intervals, you have batters, So you have two minute intervals, right? So the pace of the game will slow a pitcher down and staying with that pace. And so that by their hundredth pitch, they've had enough recovery within that hundred pitches that the game gives you that their hundredth pitch is still a quality pitch that they're executing their velocity and their spin on. Cause I think the mistake that pitchers will make is they'll go in the bullpen, they'll crank out 75 and 30 minutes. And that pitch number 60 and on, I mean, it's a big downhill because they were going at three, four pitches a minute, you know, became more of, of cardio pitching. And that's a, just a really easy thing to slip into. Um, and I talked to my high school kids about this as well. Like what's their high school season. So ideally we met, ma- we match that playing wise and we keep that schedule, um, I know that I had spoken with a college coach and, and she thought maybe that she would have her kids like take a game footage that they had and replay it. Oh, when they throw. So I got my iPad, I'm playing a game like ESPN or, or whatever. And those kids are, when they throw in the game, they throw in practice and they rest for the amount that the game rested, you know? So they're matching that pace on a previous game they pitched, uh, which I thought was a really neat um, idea and the way to kind of keep them engaged. So, that's kind of what we've talked through a little bit on the on the pitching side, keeping in mind that whenever you're returning to a season that you need a four, six week buildup. You can't go. And this is what I worry more about my high school kids yeah. is they would be back on the field in June and July playing in their PGF uh, tournaments or their showcase tournaments. And the last thing we want to do is they haven't thrown for six to eight weeks. And now we go into a high leverage, high intensity throwing situation. They gave themselves a week or two to build back up. And now we have, you know, a higher rate of injury. And what injuries really are is just the tissue tolerance is not there for the demand that you're asking, whether it's intensity, duration, uh, volume, whatever it is, like we haven't built the tissue up to handle that. And when I say tissue, you mean muscles, ligaments, tendons, fascia, all that kind of encapsulates tissue. And this is a big thing they're talking about in Major League Baseball is we know that the rate of Tommy John uh, injuries, uh, UCL tears, are higher in the beginning of spring training than they are in the middle of the season
1: mm-hmm. because
2: guys have ramped up properly and they get into spring training and now they're throwing a high intensity and the tissue hasn't gotten a chance to kind of accumulate slowly. And so that's my biggest with my high school kids is, is they don't know when they're going to go. You know, the college kids know they're going to go in September or August, right? They have their date. So we can kind of structure on a case by case basis what they have access to them, you know, so we can kind of manipulate a little bit. The high school kids, I mean, we got Colorado that's still on the books. We've got PGF is still happening. Um, We've got travel ball coaches that are saying that they're playing in May. Wow. (laughs) There's the unknown, right? Because nobody knows and there isn't a a big governing body like the NCAA that's regulating it. Um, So my fear with my high school kids is they're going to do nothing. And then, boom, I'm off playing. And they're going to end up kind of injuring themselves. So we're having those conversations with the athletes that I have Access to. Um, and then on the training side of it as, as well, like uh, Eric Cressy, I don't know if you're familiar with, he has a company called Cressy Sports Performance.
1: Sounds familiar, yeah. Uh,
2: and he's like, the, I call him like the guru of, of, of training baseball players, probably 100 Major League Baseball affiliated guys. But he put out some really good content um, recently and was talking about how a season doesn't allow you to move in a variety of ways. So if you think back to when you were in college playing, You know, we're hitting, we're throwing, we're pitching, we're fielding, and it's kind of the same movement patterns repetitively. Like there isn't a ton of variety in the game of softball. Um, So now might be the opportunity. And from that specificity, gosh, that's a tough word. Um, (laughs) Sometimes injury risk increases, right? Because we're just, we're hitting the tissue over and over and over and over again with the same pattern. Uh, the, The analogy I use with my kids is like, if you want a good vocabulary and you read the same book, over and over again you're probably not going to score well on the sat like good point a lot of books right to increase your vocabulary well movement's no different like if i need to have a lot of movement um variety i need to be able to move in a variety of ways and then the more ways that i move the better my brain gets it even moving in in the specific way so the season doesn't allow it right we're softball 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 go 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 so now might be the time that our kids get to move in different ways and they're doing these different movement patterns and crawling and rolling and doing kind of more, I guess, the foundational stuff that you did as a kid, maybe, you know, like climbing or whatever. And it's exposing their brain neurologically to all these patterns they never accessed before. And it's helping their brain turn on and light up some muscles that they never found because what we do know about the brain is a path of least resistance. So if I can figure out how to throw a ball and not have to use you know, say my rotator cuff muscle and I can circumvent that and use my pet to do it, like to stabilize my shoulder, then my brain's not going to wake up one day and be like, Oh, I should use my rotator cuff. That's important. (laughs) Right. But if I use a different movement pattern I wake it up and I engage it, then my brain might say like, Oh, well shoot, that's what the rotator cuff is supposed to do. I can use that when I throw. Right. So we have a chance to expose our kids to a lot of different things that they maybe weren't before and get pretty creative with some things Um, not necessarily, this isn't the time that we can load them because we don't have access to the equipment to really get some overload training in, but we can add variety. We can get really creative with what they have available to them. And I think in, in life, some of the best inventions come out of constraints and therefore you have to get really, really, um, creative with what's around you. So kind of a long, long answer to your story. I apologize.
1: No, but, but that seems to be the theme, like you're saying, is creativity. It's that simulation, like you're saying, like, why don't we simulate what we would be doing right now, but then also getting creative with how you can capitalize on this time. Because it's easy for everybody to wallow right now, but it's really like the opposite of what should be done if we want to keep pushing ourselves forward and uh, whatever role we play in the software world and just the game overall. Like we need to be we need to take advantage of this time in my opinion. And so I like all the insight that you're bringing into how we can do that, especially in terms of development and training.
2: Yeah. You'd be surprised too. You take a, a, a really good athlete, a really good softball player, and you put them in a crawl pattern. You ask them to crawl on all fours. They're not always good at it. And, and some of those most basic things are very eye opening for an athlete to not be very good at, yeah. you know, stand on your leg and close your eyes. Okay. Now nod your head while closing your eyes oh man, you feel like you're really off balance. Okay, well, maybe we need to to spend some time not always relying on our vestibular system to give us that uh, that feedback of where my body is in space. Maybe I need to have a, a another system that's in place. You know, because when I go to throw a ball and my eyes have to look ahead, away from where my arm and the rest of my body is, if I can have a secondary system, an internal system, that's figuring out where my hand is in space and my body, then maybe I'll be a better thrower, you know, and to kids or to, to even like some of our professional athletes, it seems like wild concepts. Like you want me to stand on a balance beam? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like all this is just information your brain is collecting and it's becoming smarter at how it processes it and and funnels it out into movement. So um, yeah, you can get really unique and then different implements too, right? Like I've seen people posting, they're using like their dog for squats and they're using, um, you know, sandbags they filled up or backpacks they filled up in the house. And now you have all these these objects that weigh a little bit different. They shift around a little bit more. And so again, it's just more feedback for the brain to figure out how to stabilize with, with this dog that's squirming while I hold him and try to do a squat. So um, I think there could be a lot of benefit to this time right now, even though it feels like doomsday. <laughs>
1: Well, I think, you know, I feel like we talk a lot about there's working hard, but then there's also working smart and it's important to do the latter as well. But this is really like, okay, well, here's our opportunity to really, really do that during this time. And I know too, that in general, you know, you've walked the path that a lot of softball players aspire to walk. So it's easy to, to kind of listen to you in that way. You've been connected to Team USA too. You play professionally. Do you see differences between kind of that collegiate softball or even sort of the high school level like you're talking about um, and the next level in terms of training?
2: Yeah well ironically I think the high school athletes have the ability to get better training. Interesting. Because it's, on, it's on their terms it's their choice and, and you have this uh, great world of, of resource of trainers out there that own their own facilities and they have their own like the Eric Cressys of the world or or the Brandon Marcellos are out there and you know we run private training like you as an athlete can choose who you ch- train with and you can sit down and you could interview those coaches kind of basically like what's your philosophy what's your methodology like show me what you do with your athletes like why does that make me better as a softball player right so we get we get the decision making power as as the high school athletes when you get to college, you don't get to make those decisions. That's true. Right? You're assigned the coach you're with. And some people are lucky and they get a great coach and they get a great strength coach. And, and they're willing to learn and, and keep thinking outside the box for this sport. And a lot of people are very unlucky and they get maybe somebody who does softball as a side, as an additional sport to a bigger sport, say football or basketball. And at the end of the day, their paycheck's going to come from being a better football strength and conditioning coach. Right. And so maybe their interest and no fault to them because their career path is going in a different direction. But I've been told by the university, I have to do the train, the softball team, you know, in the spring because we have to divide our, our resources. And so those, I think those athletes are kind of, it's frustrating for them because they don't have that relationship with that coach and, and really understanding what they do and, and caring about it. So I often think like like the high school kids are are far luckier. And, and we hear that a lot with some of our college kids, like, Oh man, I really want to get back into our programs, like, you know, all we're doing is, you know, these power cleans or whatever the exercise I just I don't feel good. I don't my body doesn't feel, you know, right. And then the frustrating thing in the college setting is you have your skill coaches in this area, you've got your trainer, you know, and your strength coach in this area, you know, and maybe your medical medical staff over here and they don't speak the same language. Mm, like right. coaches don't go in the weight room because I don't know what they're doing and I don't know why they're doing it. You know, and I don't so I don't know, so I don't go right? So our, our skill coaches don't know what they're doing in the weight room. And then the strength coaches probably don't have enough time because they're training like 10 teams, right. To get out to practice, to know what they're doing. And then the athletic trainer probably has multiple teams as well. And sometimes doesn't have the same language or speak well with the strength coach, let alone the coaches. And so you have these pockets very divided when in reality, what should happen is at the start of a college season, The skill coaches, the strength coaches, the ATC, and if you have a PT or another medical staff, sit in a room, and we all get on the same page on every athlete, okay? Here's Jenna. Here's her movement profile based on the ATC and the strength coach. Here's the skill coaches. This is what I need her to get better at. Like, I need her to hit the outside pitch. And then we put our heads together and say, okay, well, what showed up over here on this assessment, I could see why maybe she can hit the outside pitch now because she doesn't have very good thoracic rotation, right? So I can address that in her training program, I can add those, those movement exercises into a program and we can sit down with her and say, Hey, Jenna, we're going to make you a better outside pitch hitter, but here's how we're going to do it. It's going to be all hands on deck, but we don't even speak the same language right now. So I think skill coaches are afraid to talk to strength coaches and say, you know, okay, this kid's arm slot is too low on a throw. How can you help me? Because they don't think the strength coach understands.
1: Right. Right. Because it's softball specific. So Right. right.
2: Right. And if, you're, if you did, you've you got a strength coach that's never thrown a ball before, that's always a, a little bit of an obstacle, right? And then <laughs> it gets frustrated at the softball coach because the softball coach says, I want them to be fit. I want to run. And they want them to go. And the strength coach is thinking, well, I understand energy systems, which I know you've heard a lot from Brandon in your time, right? So I get energy systems and I'm, and I'm trying to train the athlete to develop the energy system I think is the most valuable, right? Or, or the multiple ones that I need to, but you over here as a softball coach are stepping in my lane and telling me I have to run them. You know, a certain testing, or we have to run the mile, for whatever it is. And so the skill coaches don't realize what they're doing is cutting off uh, the value of their strength coach. And the strength coach isn't sometimes bought in to these, these made up mental toughness things that the skill coaches want. And so now you have this battle, right? And the athletes sense it, the athletes can tell when a strength coach is frustrated with the coach stepping into their lane and then, and vice versa, when the skill coaches are frustrated that the strength coach is stepping into their lane. So I think like for the betterment of all, and I think this time, and I've talked to a lot of college coaches about this right now, this time that they have their strength coaches need to be getting like all getting in a room and let's start having these conversations. Let's start flushing this stuff out because we don't have athletes around. So we don't have to worry about, you know not being a, a united front right now we can go through those like hard conversations and get on the same page and give our athletes the best chance to succeed and not be these three isolated departments so that's what what we get to do is i get to be the skill coach and the strength coach and then we have our pt's in house so we're constantly having those conversations and our kids feel it and they have that united front you know with us which is which is why i say like i think the high school kids are at a more more advantageous position
1: it makes sense though, because you guys, what you're doing uh, with your business is you're working as a team, almost to approach each player or each group that you're working with, and that's what you have to do. And now that you're you're talking about it too, I was really lucky to have Brandon as our strength and conditioning coach in the sense that he had a lot of buy-in to softball. He had a lot of experience with Team USA. He understood it. He was invested in it. So getting that part of the quote-unquote team of the staff to be bought into the softball stuff was, was easy. And we were probably lucky in that way. Like I didn't have any injuries in college and I can't say like it was just because of Brandon, but i think it was, there was definitely a huge contribution from his program that led to that. And it's interesting that in, I could see how in any organized team that has an assigned strength and conditioning person, assigned trainers, physical therapists, et cetera, how that could be a challenge. And I'm sure you probably saw some of it during your coaching days, you know, at UC Davis, Oregon state, we've talked about it a few times. And I I think you were there when Kirk Walker was there too, right? Yeah, yeah, I
2: coached for Kirk for two years.
1: Yeah. And he, he, he's now at UCLA, but and you've also consulted with UCLA softball at at some point, right?
2: Yep. Yeah. we, We went in there and taught their staff how to do some assessments.
1: Nice. What do you feel like you've learned from your time as a coach or interacting with those college coaches?
2: I mean, like you take Kirk, for example, like Kirk's always, always thirsty for more knowledge. Like he and I are actually on a board of advisors for uh, a company called OnBaseU to develop pitching certifications, which comes out of the Titleist Performance Institute philosophy. So like, i learned from coaches like they want to know more they really do they want to know more they want to give their athletes more they want to give them better opportunities and and they they just don't know how or they don't have time because the, the craziness that is being a college coach is the cycle of recruiting and and scheduling and games and going all over the place and you know but they really do like so if for athletes are frustrated that maybe they're getting a limited resource it's not because coaches don't want to Right. It's, their, their plates are so full with so many things and I think that's a problem right you get some of these more um, better position programs that have these directors of ops or these GAs or I mean some programs out there have four or five six seven staff members that are filling up you know the projects and so they don't have to be doing the budgeting for their road trips or you know they have one or two coaches that are really on the recruiting trail and another one isn't and So when you have like that many resources, those coaches can go out and learn where you got a lot of these mid majors. Like when I was at UC Davis, like we were doing everything. We didn't have a director of ops. So I I mean, downside to to figure out the directions from the restaurant to the field, (laughs) scouting report and, and who we're playing. and, And just it's bananas that you're doing so many tasks. So, um, I really wish coaches had more resources to help them give them more time and give them more access to this. Um, because they do want to know. And then the other thing, and I always have to remind myself of this too, because I, I was a coach is, is the challenge of coming back to a player and saying, okay, I was maybe not on the right path on that. And this is, I think what we're facing with better movement analysis, with more people invested in the sport, collecting data, with things like Rapsodo. um, flight scope, if it ever becomes more accurate for softball is like blast motion, right? We have all this data that's coming in, but the fear for some coaches, and I totally get it is, Hey, I was wrong. You know, I told you to throw this pitch. Well, it turns out that pitch is not very good. Right. Or I wanted you to train this way. Well, it turns out like that's not been the best thing for your back pain, <laughs> you know, and, I, and you only get athletes for a short amount of time. You need them to buy in to the program. You need them to buy into the coaching staff and buy into each other. And it's hard when you're navigating this field of, well, now I have to tell them that maybe I I didn't have the best path for them. And I was a little bit wrong. And now I've been presented with that. So I think coaches across the country are figuring out how do I change my philosophies a little bit and my methodologies without disrupting the buy-in of my players. And then thinking, I think some coaches don't do this very well and they throw everything out and they start all over again. And, and players get frustrated with that, like this way. And now this year we're doing it that way. Like, where's the consistency. So, um, I definitely, I definitely respect and understand that challenge that they have. Whereas, you know, with, with our world and what I do is I can tell my kids, like I'm always researching. We're always collecting data. I'm not making a lineup or choosing a team or having to win. So I can tell my athlete I was wrong last week. I told you to throw your change up that way. And I was wrong. Turns out you should throw it this way. (laughs) You know, it's an easy world for me to live in. They're like, Oh, okay, I'll do I'll try that. But you know, you need to look at your third base coach or your head coach and believe in everything that they're doing. So, And I had this conversation with another college coach too. I was like, well, now's the time, right? You've got four months to sit down and think about like the data that you've collected and how you're going to implement that and, you know, how you can progressively kind of get it there rather than, you know, kind of overnight. Very different world coaching now than even when I was in it.
1: Yeah. And I feel like it all comes back to trying to find the balance of everything, especially now in the softball world more than ever.
2: (laughs) <laughs> we talk about balance and just movements, balance and in, in life, balance and emotions. Literally,
1: balance in everything. <laughs> well, I have one more question for you. It's just kind of a fun game, so it's called safer out. Um, and so, what I'll do is I'll bring up something related to softball, and if you agree or you like it, you'll say that it's safe. Or if you're like, no, I don't agree with that. I don't like it. You'll call it out. Make sense? Okay. Got it. Nervous, but we'll go. (laughs) Okay. It's fun. It's fun. Don't worry. So training hard seven days a week with no days off. Out. Out. Okay. I honestly knew based on our entire conversation that that was going to be your answer, but I kind of wanted to hit it home for everyone listening. (laughs) (laughs) Double out. Can I give two outs? You can double play. How about that? (laughs) But yeah, I feel like, cause that's something where it's I know Brandon used to talk about too the concept of overtraining versus under recovery as well, and I feel like that's, again, another example of the balance that we were yeah. talking about.
2: Yeah. unless you've got yourself 12 hours of sleep and a massage therapist and <laughs> you know, like you're doing some meditative, like float tanking, maybe then, but <laughs>
1: perfect diet.: Right, right. If everything's perfect, then sure. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much, Dana. It's been so cool to get to know you as, you know, a fellow Stanford alum, but also just as an awesome part of the softball community too. So I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. It was good to chat for a little bit. You heard Dana at the end there and say for out. She wanted the double play, right? So I'm going to give you one now and we're going to keep going with the new segment, double play tip of the week, tackling both the physical side of the game and the mental side, like a double play two for the price of one. And so obviously we talked a lot about movement and training the foundation of the body with Dana. So to round it out, this week's double play tip is about something simple yet really powerful, especially in training, and that's breath. So the idea is to be intentional. And I do mean that in two ways. So physically, you breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. A lot of us have heard that over the years. But many times when you inhale, people's knee-jerk reaction When you breathe in, is to actually suck in and suck your your stomach in. But this actually limits your lung capacity. You actually want to fill them up. You want your lungs to expand while filling up with air. So your stomach or your belly button is actually pushing up and out and away from your spine. That's the inhale. And when you exhale, if you gave into your knee-jerk reaction in the beginning to suck in your stomach on your inhale, then yeah, your natural response is going to be to push it out when you exhale. But because we actually filled our lungs on the inhale, now is the time to empty them and allow our belly button to fall back towards our spine as we exhale. So the idea is inhale, belly rise, exhale, belly fall. And these are gradual intentional breaths, not short and quick. So mentally, We should also think of proper breathing as a way of better fueling your body. If we get more air and oxygen, that's really a form of fuel for our body, our brain, et cetera, that helps us function better and even with more power. So for example, if I'm going to squat, I'm going to inhale and fill my lungs as I squat down and move towards the ground. Then I use that fuel to exhale and explode as I push upward against the resistance to stand up. So you get more output and you have more stamina over each rep over time. Controlled, intentional movements like this also help softball players translate their training in the weight room to the field. Softball really is an explosive sport, meaning we kind of load and explode. So you want to inhale as you load and exhale as you explode. For example, if you're a pitcher, you kind of inhale as you start your windup and you exhale as you explode off the mound. Hitters, you want to inhale as you load and stride and exhale as you explode and transfer your weight to attack the ball and so forth. That's the physical and mental side of breathing. Be intentional with your breath. That's a double play tip of the week. You've been listening to Believe in Softball, available everywhere on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and Believe.com, really anywhere you get your podcasts. Please keep on subscribing, rating, and sharing. Get at me on Twitter, at jennepassara01.